it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We've published some great episodes in the month of December, including a rewatchables with Quentin Tarantino on Dunkirk. Sean Fennessy sat down with Greta Gerwig to talk about her new film, Little Women, on the big picture. And Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett appeared on the Bill Simmons podcast to talk about their newest film, Uncut Gems. Happy New Year from The Ringer. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's so happy the HFPA went to a plant-based diet. It's Andy Greenwald! That was huge. That was uh, huge. Joaquin was loving it. Joaquin was like, bring me the impossible burger. <laughs> uh, Greenwald's in the building. It's uh, been a while since we've been in the same room together. Is that true? Yeah, because I think that we recorded remotely a little bit. Oh, that's right. You were in Philly. Uh-huh. And yeah, yeah, you were editing the end of Briar Patch. It's mostly because of you. You were very busy, from what <laughs> I remember. It's my fault. Yeah, uh, still Andy, not done, by the way. It's you're not. No. Oh, I thought you were like picture lock. <laughs> no, no, Roll my and friend. Smoke it. No, no, no. <laughs> want to give us an update? We, on we how don't want are that going? smoke. Um, <laughs> happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, man. Happy New Year. To Got all any New Year's resolutions? Uh, spend more time in Albuquerque. Spend more time in New Mexico. Don't start unnecessary wars. Finish the show. I think mm-hmm. that would be good. No, we are not picture locked. We did turn uh, a producer's cut of the finale into the network the last day before the holidays. Okay. So real curious about how that went over. So you haven't heard back? No, no. <laughs> Weirdly, they're no longer answering their phones. Is that a, is that an issue? Yeah, but that's the thing is in, in in Hollywood, isn't like the holiday break the day oh my God. day before Thanksgiving, like three days before Thanksgiving yeah. to. After Sundance? It's exactly right. Yeah. You, they, people usually check their VMs. Yeah. Like the first week after New Year's. But, you know, why even schedule lunches? Because Sundance is right around the corner. Andy, today, by the way, uh, we're going to be doing a uh, mailbag. Yeah, so, I'm excited um, So many folks from the Watch Facebook group and from Twitter reached out and had questions for us. Speaking of the Watch Facebook group, I did want to send a special shout out to everybody who participated uh-huh. in the Watch Facebook group's top TV shows of 2019. Oh, tell me about election. this. What oh. happened? 157 group members voted. Wow. 157. So if you think about that, yeah. we're basically the Iowa caucuses. We're basically the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. <laughs> we are bigger than them. I, I would think so. That's like 88 dudes who were like— <laughs> 88 years old. Who were like, I was there for 1917. Let me tell you, <laughs> this is a good movie. <laughs> it, was, it was one take for me too, Sonny. <laughs> um, so 157 different group members voted on uh, 126 shows. Wow. I'm going to read out the results. This is here. great. Watchmen was the show of the year. Okay. Uh, had uh, 864 points, 108 votes. I won't go through all the numbers here. Who, who coordinated this? Can we shout out whoever? I think it was just a, a bunch of like our passionate, um, uh, most passionate participants awesome. in the watch community, which like we, Andy and I do check. Greenwald more than me. I, Andy loves to send a screenshot here and there of like, check it out. I lurk. People are, people are correcting you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I usually, I read all posts that criticize Chris. Well, here's the thing that... Little, anything, little behind, anything else I... Behind I, the scenes. I, I just gloss over. And uh, I would... Kaya, tell me if this would bother you. Andy is the king <laughs> of the no comment <laughs> screenshot of yeah. about like just being like, here's the screenshot. Something maybe a little critical of you. Yeah. But no like, can you believe these folks... Don't they know this podcast is for free? Or like, hey, I know you work really hard, Chris. Maybe you just forgot no, I that think, I think High Fidelity right. and Fever Pitch are different books. Yeah. No, I think they're right. I think— Also, I so apologies to Nick Hornby. 
Apologies to Arsene Wenger and Arsenal Football Club. Apologies yeah. to everybody involved in High Fidelity and Fever Pitches, both the novel and the adaptation. Apologies to Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. But in some ways, they are all the same book. Oh, a million percent. Yeah. But I do think that it's important that I continue to serve as both your friend and your ombudsman. Yeah, it's true. Chris, someone needs to speak truth to your power. Watchmen was number one. Uh, Fleabag came in second. Succession, okay. third. Recency bias. Barry. Chernobyl, fifth. We, I Kaya dropped the Chernobyl music. Russian Doll, sixth. Uh-huh. Mindhunter, seventh. Mando, eight. Mm-hmm. Curious whether or not you finished Mando, A. Mm-hmm. B, whether Mando would make your top 10 okay. if you had 10 shows that you watched this year. All right. Uh, nine, Mr. Robot. I, I really don't know what to say at this point. We haven't finished it. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. So we apologize for that. We apologize to Nick Hornby. I apologize for Sam Esmail for his blistering adaptation <laughs> of Fever Pitch. Yeah. Um, number 10, I think you should leave. Did you ever watch that? Uh, yes, I did. I completely didn't know what you were talking about for a second. Did you have some chuckles on I that had, like one? a vision of Mrs. Fletcher in my mind. I was like, is that what that was called? <laughs> uh, oh, it's real funny. I saw the, the, the teenage son from Mrs. Fletcher at the Bowery Hotel lobby. Really? What over was Over the doing? holidays, just chilling, solo. Wow. Looking at his phone. I, I, I think you should leave his very special. Yeah, it's really funny. Shockingly, Game of Thrones came in 11th, Dark 12th, Good Place 13, Veep 14, Stranger Things 15, Euphoria 16, Killing Eve 17, What We Do in the Shadows 18, True Detective Season 3, shout out to you guys, 19, and The Righteous Gemstones 20. Can I say, this is a terrific list. Fantastic list. Seems almost unimpeachable. Like, that is really right on. It's actually incredibly, it's a really great survey of the year in television, too. Yeah. So if you are listening and you didn't, you know, participate in the Facebook group, and you're hearing about shows that maybe Andy and I haven't touched on too much, this is a really good place to just go through the year. Yeah, and I think that even if you could quibble over specific placements, I think if you divide it into fifths, say, those are generally the right tiers, mm-hmm. I think, for those shows to be in. To your Mandalorian question, so I was away. I was out of the country for the last week. Do you don't get the plus in Mexico? Uh, no, I downloaded the last episodes. But uh, once I saw that that Sean Fennessy was your chosen guest you know, to discuss the series. we still have to make the donuts every day I, here. I, I decided not to uh, Should we just it? only do it when you're in the continental United States? Yeah, when I'm bounded by the limits of the great American experiment, then we can discuss things. <laughs> okay. You know? So you won't be telling me your opinions about Mandalorian? No, I'll, maybe I'll share them on another podcast like The Big Picture. <laughs> So then Sean gets all the all the juice? This is how he wins. <laughs> Uncut Gems GIF. Haven't seen that movie. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I have a major bone to pick with Sean that he doesn't know about. Okay. About Sean, Uncut Gems? I don't know if you know this, but Sean has been uh, just flowing with the movie ranking content recently, mm-hmm. including one of the things I look forward to most every year. His which Split is Infinitives a, blog, yeah. But his list of his favorite films. And, you know, he his... Uh, 100, 200 movies that he saw this year. Uh, hashtag justice for Frozen 2. Oh, come on. Frozen 2 is But you an can't say that movie. because you haven't seen like 88% of those movies. I'm not saying that it's better than The Irishman. Again, I've only seen the first episode <laughs> of that show. What I'm saying is that it was an excellent movie. And he has some real garbaggio in the bottom half of his list. And Anna and Elsa didn't even make the cut. 
Do you, what's up? So do you think in 2020 you're pivoting to like full, like you are the Joe Biden of TV? <laughs> I'm I'm against malarkey. He, but are you? But I've you're always also been. Like, I'm not sure that I've seen that program, but let's go for it. I hate to break it to you, Chris. That's been my brand for a calendar year. Uh, no, I mean, it's like you're, you've been busy, though. Yeah. Um, uh, so I have not finished Mando. I will finish Mando. Okay. Yeah. You know, one at, other at thing, your leisure. There, there is an intersection of all these points, which is where my busyness meets my desire for recreation meets Daddington Island. Mm-hmm. And I will say that when you download content for yourself on an iPad when on vacation with children, good luck ever seeing your iPad again. Oh, yeah, of course. So... While I did download The Mandalorian last two episodes on Disney Plus, um, it had to share space with Lady and the Tramp 2. Oh, yeah. Scamp's Revenge. Still tramping. Cinderella. Stay tramping. The funny thing about Disney Plus, let me say this again. Sorry, dispatch from Daddington Island here. It, you know, people were celebrating, oh, all this Disney content from generations is available in one place. And that is particularly good if you have children who want to watch the, the content. But what it does is it kind of telescopes 70 years of their output into one into one little compact capsule. And let me say that they have not been the most consistent entertainment no, company I know. Yeah. for all those decades. <laughs> yeah. And so while there was this golden age of animation uh, initially. It's like, here's a show about a racist caterpillar. <laughs> that talks. <laughs> it's not just that either. It's that during the 80s, when they were just sort of you know, memory holing movies and then bringing them back and then putting yeah. out special editions. They also were doing these low rent cash grabs with making sequels to all their classic films that only existed on VHS tape. So now they're all there. Yes. And so Lady and the Tramp Dose, <laughs> still tramping, exists. And for my children, they're did like, Did you watch that or do they? Do, do you? I, I heard the audio yeah. coming from the stereophonic speakers of my iPad Pro that, again, I want to say I've not seen in three weeks. Um, that, you know, to, to my, to my children who think Lady and the Tramp is a classic animated film and it is, they love this sequel because they're like, it's just more Tramp. <laughs> I'm not, I shit you not. Yeah. You know what the plot is to Lady and the Tramp 2? The, the plot is Lady and the Tramp's kid, that's scamp, falls in love with a high class dame called Angel. So it's literally the same movie. It's J.J. Abrams directed. <laughs> there you go. Um. Do they do, like, some of the great, you know, set pieces from Lady and the Tramp with the pasta and stuff? I think, yeah, well, right, what would they share? A, a breadstick in this one or something. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as good. A little dry. So um, so that was the answer to your Mandalorian question. Okay. How was your break, Chris? What what sort of cultural consumption did you partake in? Because you were, you were rampaging up and down the East Coast. I've been really getting into the French resistance of the 1940s. Okay. Uh, this is good So I watched... Army of Shadows, which is a Jean-Pierre Melville movie. Awesome. I've just been reading a lot about, like, guerrilla warfare, <laughs> counterinsurgency. This all sounds like you're planning. No, 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 no. It's just one of those things where you just realize you got off in a jack. So I'm reading mm-hmm. uh, Say Nothing, the Patrick Radden Keefe book about um, the IRA and the Troubles in the okay. 1970s, 80s, and 90s. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. And then, you know, I've been paying for Criterion Channel for a really long time. So great. And I was like, I got to I gotta start, like, making some use of it. Yeah. My wife was out of town. Not that she wouldn't want to watch these things, but I was like, let me burn through some stuff. So I watched a couple of films, and it wound up being a bunch of stuff set in and around World War II French movies. So a lot of stuff like that. This great. is not the same thing as Lady and the Tramp 2. We are not the same. Okay. <laughs> um, Fair. Uh, and then other than that, it was good. Oh, I went saw Oklahoma. Yeah, talk about that. <sighs> What a production. 
Tell us about it. So that, those are really good songs, first of all. Yeah. And I uh, love that you are pivoting to 1940s <laughs> black and white French war drama. Yeah. Old musicals. Mm-hmm. And Disney sequels. Disney sequels. Uh, it was fantastic. You but know. what made this production noteworthy? Uh, well, it's like, a, it, I wouldn't say it's revisionist, but it definitely has much more modern flair. And, uh, you know, the, just the actual execution, the staging of it, they have, a, like, I think a six-piece band on stage. It's mm-hmm. the circle in the square. So the performers are all interacting and walking around as the music, you know, the band plays on mm-hmm. the stage. So it's just, you can see the performance of Oklahoma, um, from the Tonys on YouTube, and that gives you an idea of what it was like. But instead of having this huge theater, it's like you're in this like kind of really enclosed space. It was almost like punk rock. That's great. Yeah, so it was good. Uh, but honestly, it's been it's been a hole in my heart since you left. It's great to have you back. I, I don't even know. Like, <laughs> I read so many books. Did you? Yeah. I mean, this is what. I, well, I, we have, why don't we? You know what? Yeah. There is a where's what's up with the Double Down Book Club. Got any suggestions? What were your favorite books of 2019? All right. Well, let, all right. So, let, so we'll, let's, we'll go that, to the mailbag. That's from Jared Spurley. We can start right there. Before we start, okay. I did just want to say one other thing that happened uh, on my trip, which is that your boy rode a horse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I want to say, so my younger daughter wanted to ride horses. Uh-huh. So um, my only wife uh, <laughs> made good on this. That's not your younger wife. <laughs> no, not my younger wife. My only wife. Uh, made good on this. That's great. What and a what a what a job by her. Great job by her. Here's the thing, though: when you agree to do something, then you have to do it. This is my lesson of parenthood. And <laughs> so, so we showed up at a ranch, <laughs> not <in> my house, <laughs> and the gentleman, uh-huh. the cowboys, yeah, selected my steed first and suggested that I mount it. You know, have you ever ridden a horse before? First of all, what a compliment. To ask me that question. That was like when I got well, to because Albuquerque. because they had like Fairmount Park horse rides and stuff. Yeah, I didn't do that. And you could do that at the zoo too? In, in Albuquerque last year, someone said, oh, you know, there's a great indoor rock climbing arena if you're bored. And I was like, what a, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for thinking I'm someone who wants to indoor rock climb. <laughs> um, no, I've never been on a horse. I had uh, needed some assistance to get up, get up top. Uh-huh. It's a big, big animal. And then I had to do a thing which is new. Uh, I think anyone who is a parent will relate to this, where you have to look so fucking thrilled to be doing something that you are deeply skeptical about. Yeah. So my children are pointing and laughing and saying, look at daddy on a horse. And I'm like, yep, this is dad on a horse. Were you worried about getting thrown? Oh, I was, name a thing I wasn't worried about. (laughs) I want you to know, just to paint the picture. Catching horse flu. (laughs) Catching virulent horse flu. Here's the thing I want you to know. Like death, I rode a pale horse. <laughs> they what was gave its me, name? They gave me the white horse. Uh huh. I couldn't tell its name, so I kept talking to the gauchos, who were basically like, you know, your your daughter is riding a horse named Violine, beautiful name. Uh-huh. Uh huh. My friend's daughter was riding a horse named Tequila, which I felt should have been part of this experience, <laughs> sure, but wasn't. And every time I asked the name of my horse, and in Spanish, I was speaking to these gentlemen, they laughed. Like it was so like we don't speak Spanish. They were like, we don't know that horse. What? That guy just showed up here. No. What if they were like that horse is called Death? <laughs> it seemed like it. And so my horse was very easily distracted by foliage and things to chew on. And so the guy behind me, as we were riding on this path, it very quickly went off road. Uh-huh. And it had monsooned the day before. So we were 
we were uh, just sort of cantering through these like mud holes and stuff. You know, this is what happens in, in Triple Frontier, in jungles. Right? It felt like <laughs> yeah. that. I was carrying Ben Affleck's body the whole time. And um, so my horse would get distracted by Bramble. And I would say, <clears throat> horse, you know, please. Uh, hey there. Hello, friend. To the left. A la izquierda, if you will. Any language. Uh-huh. And the guy behind me thought this was, you know, I was being a little, maybe a little too beta with the horse. So he would smack the horse on its rear horse part, flank, Mm -hmm. causing the horse to rear back and gallop forward up muddy inclines. And um, Did you say to the guy, like, no no backseat horse riding? I did. um, At one point on the the return, uh, the guy was giving me a lot of instruction about, like, pull the horse, make kissing noises to the horse, show the horse that you are the boss of the horse. I'm like, listen, sir— the one thing the horse and I can agree on is that I am not in charge of this horse. Yeah. Apparently, according to my to to my friend who was with us, it, our families were vacationing together. He said uh, he said I threw back a little smokeless heat. He said at a certain point I just said I got it. Really? I got it, Andy. Yeah. I love it because he was telling, and I was like, I can make this horse, you know, advance. Sure. I can get I can get us there. Right. We're we're moving at the pace that we're we're supposed to move at. I do think that. Just to bring it back to our pop cultural conversation, I do think the cursed HBO production of Luck would have fared better had they filmed in Mexico. <laughs> Where there were less stringent less, animal safety Less rules. stringent horse laws because there was a moment, and it was lovely, we were riding on the beach, and then there was like collapsing sand dune due to the aforementioned monsoon. And so all the horses, my, my children, the other children's horses, like, easily uh, skirted the, the dune and went up the path. You went right for it. My horse went towards it and changed its mind and circled and changed its mind and circled. And they were like, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta tell the horse what to do. And I was like, horse, go follow the other they horses. They had to give you the, I mean, you, you, and they just didn't give you the name. So what the cowboy did was grab the reins from me, take the horse and gave the horse kind of a, a, a not, I don't want to say friendly neck punch. But kind of a kind of a struck the horse about the head and neck. The horse didn't seem to mind. The horse took the message. But our devoted PETA fans are definitely taking issue with all of this. But um, yeah, from that point on, we got we got, we got home on the horse. Okay. Okay. Uh, how long was this horse ride? Just just a day or two. <laughs> it, it, was, it was some camping. There was a part we got to the beach. They were like, "Would you, sir? Would you like to gallop with the horse?" And I was like. Friend, no, <laughs> no, I'm I'm feeling great about my my positioning vis a vis the horse. Um, would you ride a horse, Chris? No, I'm okay. You're kind of a west. You like westerns, sure, but I just I feel like it's a little too late in life to pick it up. Uh, let me let me assure you, it's not. It actually was kind of a beautiful experience, but it was it was uh, not something I expected to be doing. <laughs> Full stop. Um, should we get into these questions? Uh, how many of them? Or about horseback riding? Or about like when I read Equus in 10th grade. Well, let's, speaking of reading, why don't, we, why don't you give me some of your favorite books from 2019? They don't have to be 2019 books. Okay. Um, boy, I wish I, had a, I wish I had a handy list. Do you know Sean's on Letterboxd now? I do. Okay. I <laughs> just wanted to make sure you knew that. Um, I, I feel, I don't know. Are I you on Letterboxd? No. What would it be? It's just a blank. It would just, you know what? If me, a picture of you on a horse? It would be a picture of me on a horse riding away. No, it would be just the dots that appear when someone's texting you. It would just be that, me thinking about movies. Like, no, you could put all your Disney movies there. I, I would do... It would be great if you signed up for Letterboxd and it was just Lady and the Tramp 2 still tramping. Do you know what my greatest pleasure is, like pop culturally speaking, is to go on the Criterion channel uh-huh. and just add things to my watch but list. But not watch them? Who has time? 
It feels so good to curate a dream scenario to watch things. Um, ah, yes, the, the I, cinema of Ozu. I don't, <laughs> you, look, don't even joke. Because isn't that just like chilling out in Japan? Oh my God, Getting it's so old? good. Oh, Chris, it's the tatami, I, tatami mat I view of, okay, listen. Um, for those who are wondering, there's a new, in at number one bullet point in my best Patrick Modiano novels list. Just, I, I, this is this is so Jesus. All right, Happy New Year. Um, I love a French writer named Patrick Modiano. You uh-huh. could probably vibe with this guy. I'm sure I could. He uh, he won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. It was kind of a surprise, probably even to him. This is one of those <laughs> dudes who has been writing. He's like he's 70 years old now, 75. He's been writing the same book for 40 years, mm-hmm. and I love this book so much. All of his books are about dudes returning to small towns in France or wandering the streets of Paris, maybe on the Swiss border where they, something happened before, like 12 to 20 years ago, where maybe he had an encounter with a woman or he dodged the draft or he met a strange couple who were, up, who were like involved in society and maybe stole a necklace and then just wanders around lost in this weird haze of memory and characters always come up behind and like whisper things about the war or about Algeria. And then maybe <laughs> character finds out, whoops, maybe you were a Jew after all. And then it's, then the book's <laughs> over. And he's been writing this fucking book for 40 years. And it is the most beautiful, smoky, memory-drenched vibe. Is it like James Salter or something? Or Um... James Salter fucks. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't? Um, people sort of ravish each other in back rooms, and sometimes there are orgies happening slightly off camera. Okay. But it's, so it's like True Detective season two. It, <laughs> no, it's, it, it, I, I really recommend these books as a vibe. I think my favorite ones are a book called Young, uh, Young Once and the one I just read called uh, Villa Trist. Is there, is there one called Turns Out You Urge You After All? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the subtitle to all of them. It's they're I mean they're about post war and memory and they're really beautiful hangs post World War Two post World War Two yeah okay and 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 France okay and I, I find them very beautiful and haunting and speaking of France France this is a francophile podcast I I finished reading more books by Jean Patrick Manchette yeah you did who is just the the master of the French polar novel mm-hmm. these books are just wild uh, three to kill and the mad and the bad were the, the last mad two and the bad's that I read. A good title. These books are super gnarly reinventions of the noir for 1970s era France, which are, of course, very much about like left-wing politics meeting Peckinpah-esque levels of gore. Mm-hmm. Usually when like someone, generally these books are about people who are quote-unquote normal, living very kind of, not even bourgeois, but very middle-class lives. And then violence explodes into them like hollow point shells. Yeah. And then they become killers themselves. You and I also really enjoyed Larry McMurtry novels this year. We did. Yeah. We did. And we've been turning more people onto them, which is good. All right. Let's get into some other questions here. So that one came from Jared. Uh, this one's from Grant. Given the success of Watchmen, if Lost were to get a remix, what would your ideal premise be? Well, it, that's such an interesting question because, I mean, Lost is just, the title is, it's right there. Yeah. Hollywood Fixer has nothing to add to that. I got, uh, I, Hollywood Fixer is here. Oh, good. You want to remix Lost? Yeah. What about the Oceanic executives? You want to focus on the C-suite level people yeah, affected by Yeah, who's this? the guy who gets the phone call? <laughs> hey, so about that plane. Yeah. It's not there anymore. And then what happens to him? He's Cousin Greg. And then, you know, each episode is like just like a peek into the, to the life of, of some guy working at Oceanic, some gal. And then, I mean, so is it, is it the PR team? It's everybody. It's like this. It's, it could be everybody from like the insurance adjuster who has to try and find the plane 
the marketing department who's trying to like spin it like, hey, you know, the plane didn't crash. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know where it is, but we, we haven't found the plane but yet. But then like they get the call that they found some of the people. Sure. But then those people went back. Right. Like that would be, be kind of interesting to see it from that perspective. Uh, the thing about loss that I think is worth considering too, though, is how much it has affected our current television moment. We, we obviously are referring to it right now. P- readers are still asking about it. People are still discovering it. Very um, much so in the wake of Watchmen, yeah. And, and you know, obviously it influences Damon's subsequent shows like, like Watchmen and Leftovers, but also networks are still chasing it. I mean, there's a show like Manifest, which is doing something sort of similar all these years later. But it, it also feels very, very, very much a product of a completely gone era, mm-hmm. which was an era when television storytelling only moved in one direction, where it was really only about laying the track in front of you while the train was already moving I can't imagine anyone, and if anyone was, if anyone did this, it was in passing or at the end of a meeting or everyone laughed when J.J. Abrams pitched the show initially. No one was like, so what's the answer? Right, right. It, it was never. Because they were like, hopefully we can get a second season. What a great premise. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, I, I, I do hope that criticism of that show will evolve as understanding of that show evolves as well because – so much importance is placed on sticking the landing now and having a vision for an entire series telling a complete story to the point where Damon now just told his story and in one like shot deuces, yeah. nine episodes realizing the challenges they were up against and to continue and to make some to have made something so truly entertaining and exhilarating and fun anyway for for me it's very hard to imagine a, diff, a new version of lost because that tightrope act became part of the joy of it yeah absolutely you know um a, a, a newer I, version of Lost. It was at its either, best in that middle section, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And, I, and I think you could look at a show like Dark, which we love, which has a similar sense of worlds beyond worlds and in intersecting plot lines. But if anything, I don't want to say sunk the second season, but if anything dra- weighed on it was showing the work. The, the, also, the, the compression that I think is in, I think a lot of shows go into, like you're saying, go into it with an endpoint invo- in, mm-hmm. involved. I, you could tell that that second season of Dark was very much like we have a lot to explain so that we can explain the ending. Yeah. We have a lot to tell people so that they can understand what, because the, the third season is coming, I think, this year. So yeah. I think they've shot two and three together. I mean, I don't think anyone would ever, the other thing about Lost that, that, that made it so noteworthy at the time was it was an incredibly expensive and ambitious show. I mean, it was one of, if not the most expensive pilots sure. ever shot at the time. So the, the idea of combining enormous expenditures and effects and uh, with that almost improvisatory, like, fuck it, we'll do it live. Let's just see how also, crazy they, they we can make the story. Also, they were doing 20 episodes a season. I mean, that, that is the thing, is, like, the seasons <clears throat> of Lost were longer than seasons of football. Like, yeah. it's crazy the, the, to go back to that. The, the way that that show, I think, should be considered now, and, I, and I'm sure someone has written an essay about this or at least explored it, that show really is the bridge between old TV and new TV because mm-hmm. it started in one world. And then it ended, yeah. And then it ended These with... sort of split seasons and, yeah. With Cuse and Lindelof saying, let us end this. Mm-hmm. And that, that was such a radical idea saying, let us end this while we, you know, with, with some degree of authorship. Yeah. So it, it ended up, it landed, it landed the plane <laughs> where we are now. So, um, so I, I, don't, I don't have a specific answer. I don't, but it's just fascinating to think about it. Oceanic executives. That's the answer. Your answer is the answer? Ryan Toole uh, asks, what 2019 movie would have been better as a TV series? His nominee is Bombshell. Uh, I but threw that out- was a TV show. That was the loudest voice in the room. I know. Uh, that's a good point. I, I, th- I threw out the report 
um, mm -hmm. which is a movie I watched uh, a couple weeks ago on Amazon. Adam Driver. And uh, I think it would have made a fascinating whodunit, and a, not even a fascinating whodunit, but it would have made a fascinating procedural. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would be difficult to get Adam Driver for an extended period of time. But that that's a... I, I thought it was, like, really intelligent and well-written in places, but ultimately was kind of like a summary of itself. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of process-oriented stuff. I mean, it's a lot of him going and reading and going and talking to different people. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have lent itself to an episodic uh, narrative very well. And the big one is High Flying Bird. Oh, it's such a great choice. I High agree. Flying Bird was like a very cool movie that I was like, I would be happy to spend 10 hours in this world. Yeah, uh, Andre fact, Holland as an NBA agent taking Amtrak and like running around and Steven Soderbergh with like his iPhone out. Like you guys could have really squeezed the lemon on that one. It was a vibe. I yeah. mean, I think it was actually disappointing as a movie. Because it was such a fleeting feeling, yeah. it, was, it was it was like a like a jazz solo of a film without the rest of the without the rest of the the composition. Yeah, I totally would love to be in that world. Like I I totally agree, and it's an interesting example because it's one that I think would have been better served. And there aren't, there, I mean, I, obviously people know I don't watch that many movies anymore, but I I do think there aren't as many stories put in the wrong box as there used to be. Yeah. I remember feeling this very strongly about the the David Chase movie Not Fade Away, mm -hmm. which I really, really, really like and will defend. But my main takeaway from that movie was it should have been a TV show, <laughs> and you could feel how much he hated the idea of making this a TV show because he thinks cinema is greater. Is sure. Better. But recently, you know, both both forms are so much more. There aren't that many uh, movies made anymore that I think. Any anytime you bring a movie into a studio and you say this is my screenplay, I think this should be a movie. If there's any chance at all that it's a TV show, someone's going to steer it in that direction. Yes. That's what happened to Mr. Robot, and I'm sure it's happened to many other. Oh, things I think as well. it's probably only increased by like a hundred percent since Mr. Robot. Exactly. I think in general, people, studios, and and I think they would, and producers would much rather have a TV show on their hands, greater odds to develop it and make it a success than a movie. All right, so this is an interesting question that we haven't, we've chatted a little bit about, obviously, off mic, but I thought maybe it might be a useful time to talk about now. So Jason Lavala asks, uh, will you guys consider talking on air about each episode of Briar Patch, even if you can't speak critically about it? Oh, I can. Oh, <laughs> Jason. No. Uh, I'd love to hear more about what Andy experienced in production. So we've chatted a little bit about how we're going to do Briar Patch going forward. Yeah. Uh, I think the idea is for a chunk of the Thursday show, or potentially make if it's a Friday because right. we're, we're, thurs, like we're very thir late Thursday. Briar night. Patch is a Thursday night show, right? And I'm usually watching Grey's on Thursday, so yeah. I'm going to get to Briar Patch like Friday or Saturday. That's fine. Yeah, no. <laughs> Listen, just just keep one of the many TVs in your house tuned to. I had USA. to. I just asked for Briar Patch screeners. Did you? Yeah. I I denied that. <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry. Because you want me to enjoy it with everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. With the hoi polloi. How, what do you think our plan should be? Um, I would love to talk about each episode, and I would love to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, as long as people are still in interested in the making of the sausage, like what the challenges of each episode, the challenges of production, certain performances, certain aspects of it. I mean, two points to that. One is that, you know, one of the goals for the show was for each episode to stand on its own. Obviously, it's a serialized murder mystery show, and you can't really jump in and just watch episodes four and eight um, and follow the story. But it was important to me as someone who was very much on record being a fan of episodic television that each episode kind of be its own thing. And we had some, a couple episodes were directed. We had a couple multiple directors, but there were uh, more 
single episode, single directors over the course of the season. And there was intention behind all that. I mean, there were directors' abilities or idiosyncrasies that I thought would be paired really well with the content of each episode. And so being able to talk about that would be fun. But also, I would love to use the podcast as an opportunity to bring on and talk to people involved in the show. Actors, yes, but also people that um, don't usually get interviewed, mm -hmm. whether it's um, a production designer or our costumer, um, and people whose contributions are so, so vital and so amazing that are usually subsumed into the larger vibe. People yeah. might not notice all the, all the work being done on each episode in each way. So I, w I would love that. And, and then at the end of it, you can guess which one is my favorite. <laughs> um, Chris has only seen the first one still. I, seen, I saw the first episode a long time I mean, ago, like before, a, ver a version the of the first one. And then I saw some chunks of some other episodes when I went and we did S-Mail. And then I saw you shooting. Some of nine. Some of nine. Yes. And I, 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 I should cop to the fact that after we recorded that podcast with Sam, I grabbed Chris and Kaya and put them in one of the edit bays. And I... I recreated a moment in 2006 when I invited Chris over to my apartment in Brooklyn and he sat down on like a, a, a like a storage chest and I put on an advance of my chemical romance as the black parade uh -huh. and I just stared at him <laughs> while only playing the, the flashy bits. Do you want to, you, you went and saw that reunion show, the My Chemical Romance reunion yeah, show? Yeah, I did. God, that was awesome. <laughs> that was amazing. And didn't, were, you were kind of thrown off by how young the audience was. It was really, it was really an incredible thing because that was a band that I love very much and love very much to this day and, and wrote about a lot during every phase of their existence and got to know those guys pretty well. And, it, you know, it would, Dianu, it would have been enough to come back and play the songs. And because here's the difference with a show like this, it was really thrilling to see them at the Shrine Auditorium last month because they just had the songs, man. Like they didn't have to wear the makeup or have a concept other than, okay, we're back and this catalog is going to kick your ass. Mm -hmm. And that was incredible. And and I figured, you know, a lot of the, there was an aspect of it at the beginning that felt like, you know, old home week. Because sure. Thursday, another great Jersey band opened and they brought out Chris Conley from Saves the Day to duet with them and on a Buzzcock song. And, you know, it felt, and there were a lot of faces in the crowd that I hadn't seen in 10, 15 years from that whole era. And then my chem came on and they were super confident and fantastic. But there was only one moment when they appeared totally thrown, which is when Gerard asked the crowd, raise your hand if this is the first time you've seen my chemical romance show. And like 80% of the crowd raised their hand and screamed. Right. And they were blown away. They were totally stunned by that. <laughs> so that was exciting. How long have they been gone for? Um, like five years? No. Uh, they Well, the last album was 2010. Okay. And then I think they officially broke up in 12 or 13. So six or seven years. Uh, speaking of 2010, yeah. we had a question from uh, Pab Lita. Where were you and what were you watching, listening to in the beginning of the last decade? So the holidays, winter of 2010. So this wow. is a, a very striking question. So like 09, 10? Uh, well, yeah, I guess technically that. I was just thinking, I actually was thinking at the end of 2010. Okay. Here's the thing, Pab. If you were listening to this podcast in 2010, this would be a my beautiful dark twisted fantasy podcast. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> this I mean, would be a Good Friday's podcast that then led into that album. That was the central piece of pop culture of our yeah. lives for that year. Yeah. It was Kanye in Hawaii, the the rumors about like who was visiting him out there. Do you remember he had the the 
piece of paper tacked up on the studio that said, what would Mob Deep do? Yes. And then there were just these reports. Then I, then I went on to use that, that question for most of the 2010s <laughs> as my inspiration. Uh, the, just that like, oh, well, RZA was going out, mm-hmm. right? Or Pete Rock was going out. Yeah. Q-tip and, was going and, out. And he yeah. was doing this thing. Like he was basically in this moment for us, Kanye was the prince who was promised because he's exactly our age. And he was bridging this gap mm-hmm. that had as. He was out in Hawaii with Boney Vera and Nicki Minaj. And, and, in 2000. Yes, exactly. Right, and like, yeah. who, and, and Rick Ross, but also looking back to like, and Q-Tip. Mm-hmm. So bridging every possible gap in music in, a, in, in this maximalist, expansive, inclusive way to the, and was overflowing with songs and ideas to the point where, I, I don't know if people remember this Good Fridays thing where he would just drop a song on the internet. Um, some of them ended up on the record, some of them didn't. Yeah, and you would basically, there would be, they would get released, quote unquote, and then there would be this sort of, uh, like game where you would get there would be a version of it that would go up first and then you would wait for like the CDQ version yes the CD quality version to appear on Zshare or one of the file sharing services and then you would get Christian Dior denim flow and that's all you would listen to for a week until the next one came out and then he delivered on it I mean that and that record was so great yeah, that record's still one of my favorite albums ever made I, I, I think yeah no go ahead in terms of TV pretty decent year yeah I mean we had we had Mad Men, we had Breaking Bad, we had Parks and Rec and Thirty Rock in the in their prime, Friday Night Lights, Arrested Development, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, shows that I think still and The Office, of course, was still on. I think in some ways, you know, we, Chris and I always, well, maybe we do it less and less, but we did talk about like missing the monoculture and things. Mm-hmm. It does feel like a, a completely different era and one that it and one that hasn't really left us because these are still foundational shows for not just our own tastes in terms of forming us as critics and fans of the medium, but um, but kind of foundational because we still talk about TV through the lens of shows like those. Sure. Shows that felt very, um, I'll use the same words I just used about the Kanye moment, expansive and inclusive. These were shows that were, you know, kind of had just broken free of restrictions for a moment that was changing but hadn't changed so much yet that everything had been reduced to dust. Yeah, and it's also really striking how uh, in 2020, some of the great pieces of pop culture of 2010 have taken on different shades. Mm-hmm. For in, the biggest one being, I think, Social Network, right. um, which obviously was a movie about the start of something and now has taken on this air of like this predictive, <sighs> very prescient film about where things were going. Also, you know, just in terms of, of movies, I mean, 2009 brought us the, the most successful movie of all time, Avatar, a movie that, you know, still the shadow of that great I achievement. I mean, people probably think that Andy and I are, are like kind of treading water here. And the truth is, is that we are because we're waiting for Avatar 2. And 3. <laughs> and 4. Yeah. And dare I say it, 5. I, I, Avatar is one of the – honestly, you know that thing that happened like a year ago when people were like, oh, Berenstein Bears is spelled Berenstain, and so that's proof that there is multiple universes because some people remember it being spelled a different way. Uh-huh. That's how I feel about Avatar. It is so insane to me that that movie existed, <laughs> that that movie made billion dollars yeah. and just ghosted. And he, and I'm sure Cameron has lots of test footage of Sam Worthington walking around and being blue. But has anything that big left so little of a footprint? Like, oh, I mean, I think that there are, like, underground fan communities who are like, I speak Navi, dude. I'm sure there are. 
I don't think they're large communities. Am I wrong about <laughs> I that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do think that, they, I mean, like, the, the fact that so many of the sort of, um, so many of the franchises under Disney's uh, umbrella mm-hmm. are, are kind of constantly being, like, meddled with mm-hmm. and, like, tweaked a little bit. And, like, he's just allowed to spend a billion dollars and, like, build his own virtual reality set and everything. It's just so funny to me. Who knows what he's actually done? I, I think that they finished, like, the mocap. On yeah. two. Yeah. Like, did you learn that from Sam Worthington's Instagram? <laughs> no. Does he have a, a thriving one? No idea. Um, Andy, Michael Kukayas well, wants to know. Wait, before we move on, just to say, oh. we definitely could have done a podcast in 2010. Yes. Oh, absolutely. We, we, I mean, we started our podcast in late 11, right? No, January 12th. But... January 12th. Okay. Yeah, we definitely could have done 10. Uh, Michael Kukayas wants to know, what's a TV theme or genre that has overstayed its welcome and one that you think hasn't gotten its due? So I'm, I'm, I thought this was a pretty interesting question. I think you can't help but being obviously have your personal biases inform this. Mm-hmm. My overstayed one, and I know there are some fans in our Facebook group who are going to get annoyed about this, but I kind of need a break from world-building fantasy shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried The Witcher, and I just found it too, like a little bit of a tough hang. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I thought his Dark Materials, what I watched, I, I thought was like well done. But I was, I just for some reason, I'm at a point where like I'm like I can't, I can't really like learn this stuff right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe there's just too many worlds. Maybe I'm too obsessed with this one. I don't know. It has nothing. It's not like a qualitative thing. So world building fantasy would be the overstayed, underused, like the one that hasn't gotten its due. And I've been thinking about this a lot because of Mandalorian. We got to bring back a road show. Like there's not enough shows where they go on the road and have a different adventure every week. The Mandalorian. Yeah. Or like, but I'm even talking like going back to like The Fugitive or whatever. Like we're so fixated on like it's a hospital show, it's a cop show, or it's a whatever. Oh, yeah. And a lot of shows, because they shoot in Atlanta or Louisiana or Albuquerque, they have this sort of similar mm-hmm. look. And I would love to see one, a scripted show that kind of got out of the, the gate a little well, bit. Well, The Fugitive is coming back on Quibi. Can't wait. Co-starring Briarpatch star Brian Garrity. So I have to support that. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, it, it's funny. I, I actually have kind of a nostalgia for older types of shows too. Like I, I, I do looking at, you know, just looking at those 0910 shows, um, the ones that I miss the most in my life are Friday Night Lights and Parks and Rec and 30 Rock. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just like a excellent SNL pedigreed single cam comedy would be great right now. Obviously Good Place is is on, but it's ending soon. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there'll be something else to take its place, but, but you know, even one that's less high concept. Sure. I'm pretty into the, uh, Tina Fey's new show that she's making with, for Peacock with Ted Danson was, you know, going to be a 30 Rock spinoff. It was going to be Jack Donaghy becomes mayor of New York. Oh, yeah. And so Ted Alec Baldwin and didn't want to do it, so Ted Danson is now going to be the same type of character, well, who knows the same type of character, a guy who becomes the mayor of Los Angeles. Okay. So that, that could be that. That one has a a slightly different vibe than it would have in 2010, I think. A million percent true. Um, But but what's overstated? It's welcome. I don't want to... The thing about TV now is that, like, there's just some of it for everybody. So I don't want to shit on the Berlanti-verse DC shows because people love them. Yeah. I find it, I guess... I I, I guess I have some weird knee-jerk, like, superheroes took over um, the movies... And seeing them take over TV, if it's going to be Watchmen, sure, but just kind of more of the same universe. It's not hurting anybody. And in fact, it's making people 
quite happy. Yeah. I've heard some of them are even good. But I guess I, I, sometimes I see those things and I wish there was space for other ideas in, within them. So uh, this is a good question we got from Andrew Bollard, who pointed out that Netflix did this thread on January 3rd. They did a Twitter thread of all the movies, or at least a bunch of the movies that are coming on Netflix next year. Mm -hmm. This caused a little bit of a kerfluffle over the weekend because Megan Ellison tweeted that she was like, I look at the, I mean, I'm paraphrasing Megan Ellison, but she was like, I look at this list and I feel nothing. She said that? Yeah, she's like, all I see is content. And, uh, and then it was really funny because it was like, good for you, Megan Ellison, like, shoot your shot. And she was like, Twitter is the wrong place for these conversations where nuance is missed. I'm like, there was no nuance to what you were saying. You were like, these movies sound like dog shit. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch in here that are like straight up exciting, like D. Reese's new movie, The Last Thing He Wanted, which is an adaptation of a Joan Didion novel I like a lot, um, starring Ben Affleck and Anne Hathaway. Boy, fascinating cast. Yeah. And okay. then, I mean, distressed assets. Yeah. And uh, Mank, which is the David Fincher movie about the writing of Citizen Kane starring Gary Oldman, which I'm very, very excited which for. Which is crazy also because I don't understand anything that goes on behind the scenes with this stuff. But I think he was ready to do, I think the assumption was there'd be a third season of Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, not only is he making this movie, he's just been shooting it. He's almost done. Yeah. That ha seems like it all happened very fast. I think for him, if it's like, if... He's he's like in that zone right now where he can get something done really fast. And if Netflix is like, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Like so you're our partner. It's possible that the the way Hollywood worked for movies for many years made us think that everyone was Terrence Malick. But in fact, everyone's Steven Soderbergh. Like meaning people just want to do what they want. People want to do what they love doing. They want to direct stuff. And if you're going to give them the green light, they're ready to do it. And yes. by the way, Terrence Malick turned out to be Steven Soderbergh too. Yeah. He's now directing a movie every year. Um, I'm also excited to see Ben Wheatley's Rebecca remake. Um, That's wild. Yeah, with Chris and Scott Thomas. But the two that I'm most excited for, one is called The Old Guard. Mm -hmm. Here's the tweet. From director Gina Price-Blythewood, Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane lead a covert group of immortal mercenaries who must fight to keep their team together when they discover the existence of a new immortal and their extraordinary abilities are exposed. That sounds wild. The old guard. Let's do it. And then easily like my most anticipated movie outside of Dune in 2020 is Spencer Confidential. Mark Wahlberg reteams with director Peter Berg to play an ex-cop Spencer who moves in with Hawk, played by Winston Duke, an aspiring MMA fighter with his oh. own rap sheet. Between gym rounds, the duo's taunts turn to trust, and they team up to solve a double homicide. Who wrote and directed this? Well, Berg directed it. Berg directed this? <laughs> yeah. The Spencer reboot? <laughs> yeah. With Winston Duke as Hawk? Yeah. Take my money. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, what else we got here? Uh, any cooking shows you've been watching? Any new cooking shows to suggest? No. I mean, I... Allison Roman's Instagram? That's... It that it, you make a really good point. I I get a lot of that fix from Instagram. I Do guess you? now. Um, What's I'll, Melissa Clark doing on Instagram? Anything? Cooking. Yeah. Does she go Same. IGTV like I'm doing the whole meal or no, is it all like there's, then there's like Happy New Year's from Prospect Park with her and her family. That's cool. You know, it, it, it's lovely. I mean, I, I do there. I, like I follow a disproportionate number of like ramen hunters in Japan. You know, who are just like taking pictures of bowls of soup. <laughs> I mean, this is this is how I spend my life. Like, D. Reese's follow-up to the last thing you want. A series of immortal ramen eaters. <laughs> you are the fucking immortal ramen eater is what you I are. Try. No, but I, like, there is something that is kind of amazing and immediate about being able to just 
see, because the amazing thing to me about these, it's not just a picture of a bowl of soup. It's when you get into the stories and someone is just walking down the street towards a shop and you get just 30 seconds of a Tokyo block Mm -hmm. and you are kind of there and it feels very quotidian and and vibey and amazing. And that has taken some of some of the attention that previously I was giving to like Ozu films, munchies or Ozu films (laughs) or novels. None of you are going to read. Yeah. Uh, But you I mean, you're big. You're big. Bon Appetit guy. Yeah, I, I love the Bon Appetit YouTube videos. I watch a lot of, uh, like, rando First We Feast, like, burger shows and just, you know, like, I, I just, sometimes the algorithm takes you, but I, I, I get most of it from YouTube. I wish Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat would come back. I assume it will. Um, I know that there's going to be more Ugly Delicious, which was an excellent, excellent show. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a, uh, a TV hot take you want to share? Because Dr. Melissa, because <laughs> Dr. Melissa Ochepek asks, what is your best TV hot take? Hers, for example, is that The O.C. is a better high school drama than Friday Night Lights. Wow. Can we have both? Yeah. I don't know if I have any hot takes anymore. I don't know. I have, I have like, medium temperature. Like, do you know, uh, you know what, you know what happened? You know what's happening on Saturday? What? I got to go to the TCA. As, so this was the, Alex Murphy. We can end on this yeah. one. Alex Murphy asked, Andy, as a critic, what's the experience like <laughs> yeah. being n- on the other end of the spectrum where your work is going to be absorbed and critiqued by your peers? It's awesome. Um, <laughs> no, it's... It, uh, so people might not know this. The, the, there's something called the TCAs, and we've talked about this in the podcast, but um, Television Critics Association. It's a uh, membership organization. I was not a member, but it is made up of many, many TV critics from all over the country, not just maybe ones who are bigger names on Twitter or, you know, to us, people we know and are friendly with, like Alan Sepinwall, but regional re- regional critics and reporters. And twice a year, they gather in Los Angeles and all the networks and streaming services put on a pageant, mm-hmm. basically, like present their material to them. And uh, it's happening to me. I've only ever attended once. I went in 2012 to watch Sorkin get grilled for the newsroom. Oh, yeah, right. Which was fascinating. Um, but basically, on Saturday... At this hotel in Pasadena, uh, I will have to face the music. It's me, Rosario, Kim, and Jay will be taking questions and talking about the show. And so the first two episodes are going to screen. No, they will. Ha- they have access to eight. Oh, that's right. We, okay, we gave people access to the first eight, even though they were in you know relative states of being finished. But um, you know, this is something you've said too. Like I think one thing that has changed from when I was a critic is that people just want as much as possible. Right? I think if you're. I think it should be one or the other. Right. I think you should either basically have the critic on the fan track where they're like, it's going to happen once a week. I know that makes yeah. your job hard or whatever, which I would dislike. But when it was Thrones, while it was very stressful, Thrones became its own kind of NFL thing yeah. where you were like, every, all, all week we talk about, you know, the first few days of the week we talk about what happened on Sunday's episode. Yep. And the next few days of the week we talk about what might happen on this coming Sunday's episode. And there's this sort of event nature to it. If you're not going to do that, which I don't suggest, then I think you should give people as much as possible so that they get the greatest sense of the show as possible. Now, you may have some sliding scales of people whose idea of what's okay to reveal in their pieces, yeah, but I also, think it might be some people who are like, mm-hmm. man, stick around because... Yeah, and I think that, you know, one thing I'm proud of in the show is, I'm, I mean, I'm proud of all of it, but I think that, I think it's, I think it's really good at the end, especially. Yeah. So I'm really happy about people seeing Eight, which I think is a really good episode. But you also don't know how many people are actually going to watch. Sure. And can't control that. But but that was the conversation internally where I was like, part of me was thinking, well, let's just give people a taste so they're excited about what's to come. 
you know, three ends with a really sort of interesting, exciting thing. And, and what does it mean? But the, the consensus within the network now is, you know, we're not hiding anything. Sure. We're proud of the show. So let's just share it. So, but for the first time, I'll be talking to people or interacting with people who have seen a bunch of it. And it's a little intimidating. Yeah. It's a little scary. But, you know, I, I feel, I feel weirdly healthy about it because the one thing, and people have heard me talk about this for the last year and a half, the process of doing this was so amazing and rewarding and no review of the finished product will actually take in the totality of what the experience was for me and how, um, you know, just how much growth was a part of it and how much yeah. education yeah. and relationships that were made. And, and, and so I feel very at peace with do you almost what look, I mean, I, I think is like, I think the danger would be you go through this process and you're like, it's really not fair to criticize this stuff at all because pe- what goes into making it? No, I, I think. But I think you almost seem like you look at it as two separate things. I do. Like I mean, once you're, once it's out, it's not, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You can't control it. I cannot, at no point, I think the only thing that kept me sane during the last two years was knowing I cannot control the outcome of this. Mm-hmm. It would be foolish to try. It would be crazy making to try. All I can do is work on today or this decision or this, you know, whatever I was working on at the moment and try to appreciate it and be present for it and enjoy it and know that things, I mean, the things that kill me about the show are just missed opportunities. Sure. I don't know how missed opportunities will translate to people who don't know what the opportunities were. Right. Will that code as a mistake or will they notice what's not there or how it could have been different? You got to do the Chris Terrio uh, apology tour after though. Can't wait. I have so much to apologize for. (laughs) Um, But I also, and I, and I do mean this sincerely, like, I very much understand the role of the critic in all this, mm. and I hope I can learn from it as well. But I also do know that having been a critic, I don't think anyone, I mean, I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think anyone can be as hard on it as I already have sure. been. So it's exciting. It premieres, you know, it premieres a month from today. Yeah. So yeah, but that, that version of it is, is going to be interesting. I have no idea. I don't know what the narrative is. I, well, we, we can shape it together. We can shape the narrative on this podcast. Yeah, the Oceanic Executives. How do we respond to, to, to it? It's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I really respect that you are taking a corporate crisis <laughs> management. Yes. That maybe you're trying to tell me something. I'm maybe Jim you Carville. know something that I don't know. Jim Carville and Little Rock in 91. Oh, my God. Just I'll be your Mary Madeline. Just take me away from all this. Uh, all right, let's wrap it up there. Andy, it's go, so good to have you back. It's a pleasure. In the coming weeks, like I did this show a couple weeks ago from so the solo show about shows to look forward to yeah. in 2020. The big one that's coming up first is Outsider, which premieres this coming weekend mm-hmm. on HBO. And I watched the first few episodes. <sighs> it is dark. It is real good, though. Yeah. But it is super dark. Richard Price wrote it. Richard Price wrote it. Jason Bateman directed the first two episodes. It stars Bateman, Ben Mendelsohn, Julianne Nicholson, uh, Cynthia Erivo. So it's, it's fucking cracking but it is it is not a fun hang if you're looking for Sunday night some some pick-me-ups I am looking for pick-me-ups so what should I do <laughs> I don't know honestly watch the JV and Clowney like hit Carson Wentz no, in the back of the head nothing is going to get darker than that <laughs> okay. so maybe I can handle it it's, it's more bright than outsider alright so probably be talking about that coming going forward and I'm sure we'll find other stuff so thanks so much for listening we're so excited to do the show for another year Congratulations, Chris, on winning the Golden Globe last night for Best Podcast Co-host. See you guys. Great job.